And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful hour with Dr. Mark Muska. We call this Ask the Professor. So really, any questions you have about uh, the Bible, we would love to hear them. As a matter of fact, I practically insist that you send questions because he is here with his Bible open, and it's so fun to dig into his brain. And uh, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Mark, welcome. Hey, great hey. to see you, Bill. Yeah, summertime is here. Awesome. Have a big 4th of July coming up. And I biked over here, almost died. It is like a, <laughs> a steam bath out there. Yeah. I was thinking it was like, you remember the old I Love Lucy where they used to have the steam bath things to lose weight? But it looked like one of these ice chests at <laughs> yeah. the gas station, you know, and they'd sit there with their heads sticking out. Yeah, that's it how feels it feels, like doesn't that. it? It's hot. Yeah, well, so glad to have you here. I always look forward to times to talk about the Bible, God's words, my favorite subject. We've got a bunch of questions already coming in, so why don't we start with this one? This one comes in from a, a very wise listener named Arthur, and he said, uh, uh, why do preachers tell the congregation to forgive without confession and repentance while God says, if you confess your sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness? That's part one of the question. Yeah, and that I'm not sure if I exactly understand it. It'd be nice if Arthur could uh, interact with us a little bit and clarify that. But He, uh, he might. I mean, he's, <coughs> you can send me a, a, another email, Arthur, if you're listening. Go ahead. Yeah, um, but it's, it's, uh, it might be this thing about forgiving others and w- whether we should wait until they ask for forgiveness or if we should just forgive because the Lord has forgiven us, that kind of thing. We could get mm-hmm. into that for a while. And that, uh, that's got some nuances to it, Bill. That's not uh, just a straightforward answer because I, uh, th- uh, I think the key to it, though, is that we are called because Christ has forgiven us. I love the parable in Matthew uh, uh, where uh, Jesus tells the parable of the, the two servants that served the king, and the king forgave the one servant this great debt, but then the, that servant wouldn't forgive his fellow servant of the little itty-bitty debt. Mm-hmm. And Jesus made a point to say, you've been forgiven so much. Forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Otherwise, you don't even understand the gospel. And so we are called to forgive others. And I I sense there that that's for our own sake, for our own walk with Christ, that we forgive others before they even ask, just for the peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Because what's the alternative? Bitterness, resentment, anger, that multiplies out to depression and all these terrible things if we have an unforgiving heart. And we should recognize how much we've been forgiven. And so we extend forgiveness, whether they ask for it or not, mm-hmm. for our own benefit. Right. But then there's the idea of reconciliation in there to say, okay, to be reconciled to someone means that you're at peace with them. And it's almost impossible to be at peace with someone if there's offense in there. Now, Minnesotans especially like to just try to cover that up with all the the play acting that we do and uh, passive aggressive kind of stuff. Uh, So we put these big smile on our face and on the inside, we're just kind of uh, grinding our teeth Mm -hmm. because this person said something or they did something. And well, it's going to be hard to be reconciled to that person until they do, as as a matter of fact, of uh, admit what they've done. Mm-hmm. And then it's possible to be at peace again yeah. with the person. You, you know how this works. I mean, the people that we work closely, our family members and that, there's always stuff going on like that mm-hmm. where somebody says something stupid or they do something stupid. And Not you, me. You have, to, you have to make it right. Yeah. And so uh, it, 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 there's just no other way to restore the relationship. Well, this um, Arthur said, you know, if you confess your sins uh, to the Lord, I mean, 1 John 1, 9. Yep. Um, 
And then part two of the question is, or the statement is, if all sins are forgiven without confession, then everyone is going to heaven for God is not willing that anyone should perish. I, I mean, I think he's just putting yeah. this out there. He's not saying this is the case. Right. But, and that's a little different question. Yeah, it's a little different question. But if we confess our sins, I think there's a lot of sin confession that goes on in like recovery groups where people realize that they've broken, they've made a mistake, they need yeah. to ask forgiveness. Here's what I've done wrong. Is that going on in churches, though? Are we doing that with each other? We should be. Are we doing it with God? Uh, we should be. Again, are we trying to? Are we repenting of specific sins to God? Yeah, I mean that is. We should, the, shouldn't we? Yeah, and I think that's the heart of First John one nine, as far as our relationship with God, is that we've already been forgiven everything we're ever going to do, past, present, future, if we've put our faith in the gospel and trust that Jesus' death pays for all our sin. Because think about it, Bill. Two thousand years ago, who cares if it was nineteen ninety seven or two thousand twenty three? It's all way in the future, and Jesus forgave it all. So that that slate is wiped clean, but it's more of a fellowship issue to say, again, how can you be at peace with someone else if there's something between you? Uh, so if there's an issue of uh, sin or rebellion or something we've done to displease the Lord, something that's hateful to the Lord, yeah, we have to admit that to make things right and to restore the quality of our fellowship with the Lord as we walk with him uh, day by day. We don't do that. We're we're still saved, technically, but uh, we're not on real good speaking terms with God. There's a distance there. Mm-hmm. And if people live that way day after day and let it prolong, that's when you hear people start saying, well, there's a coldness in my relationship with the Lord, and uh, I just feel like he's so far away and all this kind of stuff. Well, it may be time then to think about this, to say, well, is there anything standing between you and him that you need to deal with? Mm-hmm. And let the Holy Spirit uh, bring things to mind. That's his job. He, uh, John 16, Jesus says it's part of the Spirit's job description to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So ask him, is there anything standing between me and you, Lord? And let the Spirit do his work. He, wow, that's fantastic. He'd be more than happy to do that because yeah. he wants you to be on good terms with the Father as well. Right. So doesn't have to be a big mystery, does it? No. And uh, and uh, I learned very early on, my first year as a Christian, the, the guy that was teaching me a lot of things, he said, and Mark, make sure to keep short sin accounts too. Don't let things just drag out for weeks and months. You know, you do something wrong, admit it, mm-hmm. get it dealt with. And so keep those short sin accounts. It's so easy to try to rationalize, because I don't think, too, Bill, that the word confess is easy. That we, I think of Perry Mason back when I was growing up, and the guy would confess on the stand in the last <laughs> two minutes of the Perry Mason show. <laughs> I did it, I did that. Yeah. And so to confess means that you admit that you've done something. But that also implies that you're not making excuses, you're not trying to rationalize it, you're not blaming others, you're taking responsibility for what you did. Wow. So it's coming to God and say, okay, Lord, I, I said that. And there's no other way around it. That was wrong. I hurt that person with what I did. And so please, you know, extend the the forgiveness that Christ has given to this so I can be on good terms with you. And by the way, I have to go talk to that other person too and make it right with him too, the person I offended. So that's admitting it and not trying to whitewash it. We have too much of that today. I tease my students sometimes, Bill, and say that the mind is a dangerous thing. If you think about something long enough, you can usually rationalize it. Yeah. And so it's better to just admit it just get it done with and get it beyond you so that you can move forward. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's another question, Mark. Mm-hmm. Ten lepers being healed. Ten lepers being healed. One mm-hmm. returned. 
give thanks. Yeah. Is the healing given to all the ten the same as the healing given to the Samaritan that returned to give thanks? Because sure. a, a different Greek word was used. Yeah. And does that say anything about our responsibility in responding to the gospel? Or what is my takeaway from the difference, if there is one? Yeah, I don't, uh, again, I'm not sure. It's, it's great to interact and I know. So a little bit. If but, uh, any of these texters want to call and come on our, our show yeah. and talk to us, we'd love that. 877-933-2484. We'll take your call and we can get this all, um, all figured out. Yeah, because they're all cleansed. And Jesus extends this, and there's no mention of any kind of uh, 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 faith in the gospel about all they do is all 10 here. I'm looking at Luke 17, uh, verse 13, and it says, They, the 10, raise their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And so Jesus healed them on that basis. Mm-hmm. And so doesn't sound like it was much more than that. But the point here that Jesus is making is that this is something that that elicits gratitude and whatever was going on with the other nine, this one acknowledged this and, uh, he was, he was, uh, able to, uh, uh, recognize what, what he did. And so then Jesus in verse 19 to end the scene, uh, Jesus says to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. So there's a, there's an added thing there besides just the cleansing from the leprosy. It seems as though there's more healing that's taken place with this one than with the other nine. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what the listeners are getting at. Yeah, great. We're going to um, take a little break because I just want to get all the questions started. Uh, I want them to get loaded up so you can call if you, there's already a caller coming in, 877-93-FAITH, or you can text, but we'd love to hear your voice. We'd love to get you into the program. Again, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be right back. My friend Mark Muskin studio. We call this our Ask the Professor, so let me know what your questions are. Maybe you've been thinking about something that you read in Scripture yesterday or maybe even this morning or maybe a year ago or 10 years ago, and you're still looking for uh, perspective on that. 877-933-2484. That's the number you can call and just talk to us. Why not? And if you want to remain anonymous, that's okay. And if you want to send a text, you can do that too. We're happy anyway. We just want to hear from you. 877-933-2484. All right, here's a question, Mark. Okay. Um, let's see here. Um, when witnessing, does the person you're talking with need to be aware that they're not on their way to heaven? Um, directly, not necessarily that very fact, but generally, yeah, they mm-hmm. have to be aware of their need. And so whatever that is, that different needs speak to people in different ways. So for some people, they are very concerned about the afterlife and where they will be when they die. And so that may be important to say, okay, you know, you're still on your way there, pal. You've got, you know, let me share this message with you so that you can be assured of where you're going to be when you open your eyes after you die. 
Other people, though, Bill, you know this, there's a dozen the things you can name almost immediately of people's needs. Some people feel alienated from God. And so the gospel, the, you're going to address that and say, you can be at peace with God. Well, That's one that yeah. spoke to me huge when I first put my faith in the gospel, that I finally could be at peace with God. I had this stupid smile on my face for about a week because <laughs> of the relief mm-hmm. of that, yeah. you know? And so uh, there's all kinds of different needs that people have. And one of the skills that we develop as we witness is to be able to listen to the person and read their body language and so forth and to be able to understand a little bit of what's going on there. For some people, the barrier is a moral uh, dilemma that they're in. So someone tragically has a child die uh, very early age in a tragic accident. And so they're really questioning the goodness of God. And, and so you may have to be ready to fold that into your presentation of the gospel. So, uh, yeah, if, if somebody is uh, uh, intent on the afterlife and thinking about that, you, you bet. It, it's, uh, uh, their need has to be presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the way to say it is for the good news to really be good, there has to be a predicate there of something that's bad news that you are alienated from God, that you aren't able to figure out why evil things happen in in the world, why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Or that There's, there's got to be something bad that has to be addressed for something good to address it. And so uh, I, I think sometimes people just don't have any of that. They're just kind of apathetic about God and the afterlife and the important questions of life. They're just kind of cruising through life, and they're very difficult to reach because... A person like that that doesn't understand their need, uh, they're not going to be interested in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Or worse, they're going to be interested in him for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And they'll have a, a, a facade of religiosity but not really be connected with the the content of the gospel. Yeah. So, Are reaching religious people the hardest people to reach? I, yes often? and no. On okay. the one hand, sometimes they can get into all kinds of religious practices, so going mm-hmm. to church, sacraments, right. all this kind of stuff, to justify themselves. And they're in trouble. That, that's, that's the wrong path to be on of thinking somehow we can justify ourselves before God. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 where he says that because of human sin, every mouth is shut before God. And so it's like all these people want to bring all these things they've done, and God's just saying to them, shh, (laughs) shh, Mm -hmm. shut up. Just don't try to say anything. There's nothing you can do or say that's going to justify you. And so in that sense... People who are very devoted, religious people, may be difficult to reach if they're attempting to justify themselves. On the other hand, though, churchgoers that are religious people, they're easier to reach sometimes because they're at least interested in God. (laughs) They're interested in something about him so that they show up for services and Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. So uh, you can use that as a connection point with someone to say, I see you're interested in in God and in connecting with him somehow. And so uh, that may lead you then to be able to share with them. It's one of the most tragic things in the world that people go year after year uh, to church gatherings and church services, and they never really hit the gospel in there somehow for one reason or another, that it wasn't being proclaimed clearly to them. Yeah, it should be declared from the pulpit, shouldn't it? Right, everywhere, you know, in the Sunday school class, Mm -hmm. in the the kiddies thing, you know, that uh, people will say, oh, they know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But you ask them what that means, and it's like, uh, well, hmm, Mm -hmm. uh, 
and there's kind of a blank spot there. But mm-hmm. they know the ritual. They know how to say the words, but right. the meaning of them hasn't quite clicked yet for right. them. Right. So, Here's another question, Mark. Uh, sure. Let's talk about Job's friends. Yeah. Should you not take anything they said as correct? Should we not quote them at all? Yeah, I don't know. The, the, those are actually subtly two different questions. There. Okay. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. These three guys show up, and uh, Job is really getting pounded. He loses his possessions and his family uh, in the first chapter of Job, and then he's struck with this terrible thing. Every time I read this, I start scratching <laughs> you know, vicariously. Mm-hmm. He's scraping himself with a piece of pottery. Oh, yeah. Because you know, he's nasty. some nasty eczema or something Ooh, you know, that yeah. he's got that's just awful. And uh, unfortunately, the only one there yet is his wife. And so she's got the gift of encouragement there. She says to him, <laughs> uh, curse God and die. You know, and so uh, he he corrects her. You know, if if God, uh, if, if I follow God in the good times, I got to be able to accept the bad times. But then these three show up, and at the highlight of the book for them is at the end of chapter two, where they show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they don't say anything. They sit with Job for seven days without saying a word because they saw that his pain was very great. And that, as soon as they open their mouth in chapter three, things start going downhill for the for three friends. They, I don't, I think it's an overreaction though, Bill, to say that everything that they said was wrong. Uh-uh. That's usually not the way it works with anything, mm-hmm. where someone is completely wrong about everything. Right. You know, the day is night and night is day and black is <laughs> uh-huh. blue and, you know, uh, there's a, very few people that can survive doing that. But what usually happens, the subtlety is that, you take a whole lot of truth, but then just parts of it can be twisted and it wrecks the whole thing. Right. And so uh, they say a lot of really good things about God, that he is just, that he is in control, and that Job has a sin problem like everybody else. I mean, there's some there's some accurate things in there. I like to quote some of these things uh, from the three friends uh, in and of themselves. The problem is, though, is that they failed to reconcile the issues that were going on there as far as why Job was suffering. That's the real focus of the book. Why is this happening? I really like an old book that was written by a Jewish rabbi way back in the 1970s, uh, Harold Kushner. Oh, yeah. And uh, when bad things happen to good people, he sold millions of copies. I know he did. One of the most popular books ever written mm-hmm. and uh, not a Christian at all, but he recognized studying Job that there was a problem here, that if you believe that God is all powerful and controls everything, if you also believe that God is good and so good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, and you also believe that Job is a good man, you got a problem because this good man is having really bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And what his three buddies did, their mistake was that they considered God's sovereignty, his control of the universe, and God's goodness were both non-negotiables. I'm, I'm not going to even talk to you about that, Job. You know, this is, this is, everybody has to believe that. God is in control and God is good. So the only thing that you're left with then is that Job must have done something wrong. And meanwhile, Job in there is going, I'm willing to admit it. Right. If God would show me what I did wrong, but for the life of me, I don't know what I did. And that's the tragedy of it because we see behind the scenes and he didn't do anything wrong to cause this to happen. That their 
their understanding of the situation was too shallow. They didn't go deep enough into it to understand what it means when bad things happen to good people. So that's their flaw in there. And thankfully, there's a younger man that comes along toward the end of the book. He sits there with everybody else. I think what happened is you got these four old guys there debating all this stuff, chapter after chapter. Mm -hmm. And I think a whole bunch of people probably gathered around and were listening to the discussion. And finally, one of them, a younger man, when he saw that they were done talking, he was ticked. He was ticked at Job, and he was ticked at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because the three, they condemned Job, but they didn't solve the issue. And Job ends up justifying himself that he didn't do anything wrong. So he comes in with the answer to the question. So, the, But to completely write off everything that they say after chap, chapter after chapter is an overreaction to the okay. situation. All right. Um, in the book of Acts, we learn about the sons of Siva. And they apparently had some desire to do what uh, Paul was being... You're talking about the exorcist, right? The exorcist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and their encounter with a demon-possessed man is pretty amazing, Mark. I think it's... Oh, yeah. The demon pretty much says to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Yeah, uh, this this (laughs) would make an amazing... A comedy sketch if it didn't have to do with spiritual warfare right, and I demonic agree. powers, because this uh, uh, Paul is performing these incredible signs right. in Ephesus, and uh, ev- everybody is, they're gathering their attention, and so uh, he's uh, he's able to do these things. Well, these th- uh, these sons of Sceva, evidently they had been. Uh, uh, become jealous about that. And so they were trying to exercise a demon out of this man. And what they say is terrific here. I, t- I turned over uh, to this. Um, uh, it's, uh, let's see here, Acts 19. And listen to what that says here, uh, verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who are from who went from place to place, so they were traveling exorcists, mm-hmm. dealing with spiritual warfare, attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Right. And these guys don't believe in either one of them. Right. But they see there's power there. They're using incantations of some kind? Right. Yeah. They think that the name of Jesus and Paul, if you just say it, anybody says it, it's got this power. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's got to be something behind that. And yeah. then it's what you said there. <laughs> the evil spirit answered and said, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? <laughs> I want to pick up after the break because this is kind of an interesting topic and I want to get back okay. to it. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Let me know what your questions are. You can call and talk uh, to us directly on the program. Or if you're a little bit more shy, you can send a text, 877-933-2484. But I know you're not shy. Just give us a call, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Let us know what your questions are. You can call and be on the program and speak to him live, or you can send a text, 877-933-2484. Love to hear from you. Right before the break, Mark, we were just talking about the sons of Skiba mm-hmm. and how they uh, apparently 
they have a little charlatan in them, perhaps? It's hard to tell because yeah. they must have had something going for them to be traveling around doing this. You know, you'd right. think after 17 failures in a row, they'd try something else. <laughs> yeah. you know? So there must have been something happening there, but the scriptures just don't give us any of that background to it. But they clearly here uh, get pounded because we didn't pounded. get we didn't get to it. But the next verse, after they say, you know, who are you, the demons? It says, and the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and, and wounded. wounded. Yes. So, and there's like six of them. So, yeah. this guy takes care of them right there. But what I really like is what Luke says at the end of it, because he says that. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Not Paul's name, the Lord Jesus. That's the whole point of all of that. Mm-hmm. And then it's really cool in the right the next verses it talks about how these people are being delivered from occultic practices and they're coming and they're burning their occultic books and their magical practices and everything. And it's it's just really Something a uh, uh, fifty thousand pieces of silver was what this stuff was worth that they burned. And again, Luke ends it by saying, "So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing." In verse twenty, so mm-hmm. this must have been really something. Uh, four or five years ago, I had the opportunity to take a trip to Greece and Turkey, and we stood in Ephesus and in the marketplace and just tried to picture this scene and to be able to to drink it in. It's really moving to be able to stand there and see where these events took place. It's not made up. You know, these are real people, real places, mm-hmm. uh, real events that took place. Mm-hmm. Here's a, another question, Mark, from a listener. When you go to heaven, are you with your ex or present wife? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's a legitimate question. We have tons of questions about the afterlife. Yeah, we sure do. Uh, do I get wings? <sighs> I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I f- float around in the clouds and play some little harp? Uh, all these so. kinds of things. But it, it reveals, Bill, there's a curiosity that everybody has about this. And so uh, this person, I'm I'm not going to assume anything, but it sounds like this has been someone who's been divorced and remarried mm-hmm. and now uh, wonders about this in the afterlife. Well, actually, Jesus actually addressed this kind of issue about marriage in the afterlife. Uh, it's uh, when he's uh, he's going to be betrayed real soon. It's near the end of his public ministry when he's teaching in the temple. And there was a party of the Jews that dominated the uh, priesthood in Jerusalem called the Sadducees. Some of our listeners might have heard of them before. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the afterlife. They thought there was no such thing as the afterlife. And so they try to trap Jesus in Mark chapter 12 by asking him a question about marriage and the afterlife, believe it or not. So this wow. this uh, listener should look at this. Right out of Mark 12. Yeah. And so in Mark 12 here, uh, this is what they test Jesus with. And remember, they're not asking an honest question here. They're trying to trip him up. Right. Okay. And so uh, verse 20 of Mark 12 There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her, the second brother. The reason he did that was the Leveret Law, Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament law, that the nearest relative would marry the widow in order to raise up an heir to the dead brother's name. And so the second one uh, married and uh, died, though, leaving no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven married her and left no children. Last 
of all, uh, the woman died also. And I was just commenting, she must have been some kind of woman, you know, to, to, to kill off these seven guys. You know, this is something here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pick on women here. He could easily have reversed this around. But then they ask, in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Okay. So it's very similar to yeah. the question we got yeah. here. And I love Jesus' wisdom here. He says... Is this not the reason you're mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? That is called gotcha by Jesus. He says that to these Pharisees, experts in the scripture, the leaders in Israel. Mm -hmm. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he says, verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So marriage is a temporary institution for us, that in the afterlife, we are not married or given in marriage. And then he has one more zinger for him just to make sure that he, he, he pins him uh, real good. He, in verse 26, he says, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Pow. You know, he, he <laughs> no nails kidding. them with yeah. that. So it didn't take long in Mark 12 here. All these people are coming and trying to trick Jesus, and they all fail. And so mm-hmm. they quit asking him questions. And it's like, yeah, it's about time to give this one up, boys. Yeah, you're getting <laughs> hammered by Jesus here. You know, he, he just, he just uh, completely turns aside all their questions. Yeah. All right, Mark, here's another question. Does oh. the term one another refer to all people or just Christians? That is a good question. Most of the time in the New Testament, it refers to the body of Christ, the fellowship of the brotherhood and the sisterhood. But I would be, I would need to do a careful st- search through the scriptures to make sure that they all are concerning the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Paul uses this, I think it's about nine or ten times in his letters. He will talk about forgiving one another just as God has forgiven you mm-hmm. and uh, all these. In fact, it's a rich Bible study. If any of you want to, if you have a concordance at all, you all know what a concordance is? A concordance is all the words in the Bible in alphabetical order. And so if you want to look at all the words, all the times it says one another, in the New Testament, you can look under O, and it will have one another, and you look up all the passages. It is a grand Bible study to do, to see what the fellowship of the body of Christ is supposed to be. So I would, I, I'm just going to be careful because I haven't done that study for a while, and I don't know if it had to do with humanity as a whole, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of them have to do with with the body of Christ. Great answer. Thank you so much for that. Here's another question. One meaning of Israel is he struggles with God. Mm -hmm. Why was Jacob commended and honored for struggling with God rather than submitting to him? That would be Genesis 3.32. Yeah, this is, I think Jacob is such a fun person to study. Uh, He had... Uh, some horseradish personality, you know? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. The guy was not meek and mild and uh, uh, humble and everything like that. Uh, he was a usurper, one trying to take the place of others. And he earned his name with how he tricked Esau two different times 
to give up, first of all, his birthright, and second of all, his blessing from his father. And so he was a real character. Uh, I don't think we would lift him up as a shining example of uh, virtuous character uh, going on here. But, you know, the the older I get, Bill, I think I finally figured this out when I was in my 50s or so, Mm -hmm. that you look at any character trait that someone has, and there is always a sunny side to that trait and a dark side to that trait. And so with Jacob, I think we can understand this real clearly, that he was bullheaded. He was willing to do just about anything to get what he wanted. And so it really wasn't good with what he did to Esau. You can never justify that. That was that was wrong. I like it, though, that it points to grace because God still blessed him, even though he wasn't perfect. He didn't have a halo over his head, and God still passed on the blessing through Jacob to his 12 sons. But that bullheadedness and do anything to get what he wants, he wouldn't let go of the man that he wrestled with. And so that that there was this dream and vision that he had of wrestling this guy all night long, and he wouldn't let him go until the guy finally put his hip out of place. Right. And so that showed persistence there. And someone that just doesn't give up real easily, and they're going to do what they have to do to overcome or Mm -hmm. to persevere in something. And I don't know about you, I think that is a really good character trait that people have. But you have to kind of take the pepper with the salt there. You know, Mm -hmm. when you have someone who has that kind of drive and everything, it may show itself at times in really bad ways in in their lives and the way they treat people. So, is the 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 struggle that Jacob had? Is it? Is it a, was it all physical or was it a more of a, a night? Because the most well-conditioned Olympian wrestler athlete can last about, what, two minutes in a ring? Yeah, it's exhausting. And they got to take a break. I mean, yeah. you can't be wrestling all night, right? Well, they might have gotten locked up and, you know, they just kind of lay there for a while. <laughs> 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 We're not given that kind of detail right, right. with it. So, uh, But, yeah, this he's he's impressive here that he is not going to let this, supposedly this angel, go without uh, being blessed by him. So uh, this, is, uh, this is impressive. But uh, like I said, he is, he is one of the, one of the uh, real intriguing characters in the Scripture to, to look at. Mm-hmm. I like him because he's real. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, uh, Rebecca's got a question about Joseph and divination. Yeah, a little bit later in in Genesis, we're reading through this as a family. So all the stuff about Jacob and Joseph, I'm seeing it through our kids' eyes now. And a verse Mm -hmm. that I don't think I'd noticed before is in Genesis 44, Mm -hmm. when Joseph is attempting to set up his brothers to see if they've changed. Mm -hmm. So he puts his silver cup into Benjamin's sack of grain. Um, So 44, around about verse 5, Joseph is, is making clear the story that he wants his servants to tell mm-hmm. to his brothers and they're supposed to tell him is this not the the one the cup from which my lord drinks and which he indeed also uses for divination mm-hmm. and then a little bit later i think it's verse um 15 maybe verse 15 joseph said why is this what is this deed you have done do you not know that such a man as i can indeed practice divination yeah so they were kind of wondering how what does this mean and i know that divination around the time of the mosaic law is definitely not something god wants his people to participate in so i wasn't sure how to explain what's going on here Mm -hmm. and you know you may not be able to do it really well because the (laughs) well thanks (laughs) well i don't think anybody can it's nothing personal okay no no, that's 
okay. Uh, but it, you have to just be able to step back from some of these passages. When the Bible doesn't explain it, then I'm very hesitant to try right. to explain it. Right. Uh, that for some reason God just let this go in there, and then uh, I think you're on to something to say that the whole condemnation of divination is still on its way in the Mosaic Law. This is centuries before uh, God appeared to Moses and gave him the law. You're still not out of the dark, though, and maybe I hope your kids aren't listening because they're going to get you tonight <laughs> on this. But uh, the uh, the tough one is with Daniel and his three pals as well mm-hmm. because they really were considered the wise men, the magi, the magicians in Babylon serving Nebuchadnezzar, and that had to do with the occultic arts. And so did Daniel practice that along with his... Uh, of uh, three pals, or uh, did they stay away from that and just stick to visions that God would give them? But, you know, there's going to be tricky things like that. And it puts a frown on my face sometimes, but then I smile too to say, it just shows me there's so much more here than I'm ever going to be able to piece together. And so it, it lends to its genuineness. If this was made up by somebody they wouldn't leave something hanging like this, Rebecca. You, you would know? want to explain it. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And so it, 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 he wrote it that way because that's what happened. And this is what the story is. So it actually argues for the genuineness of it historically. But uh, if you can think of something, you know, uh, go ahead and uh, let them have it. But this is, uh, I think it's a, it's a part of this that we just have to leave alone. Uh, the, the whole context here of Egypt thousands of years ago, we have to recognize the gap we're trying to broach there to to understand this. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. That was really nice, Mark. And well, it's, I didn't give an answer at all, but I'm trying it, to but, uh, be content with you that. You've got such a so. nice way about you, though. <laughs> you know? And if you've got a child or, or grandchild considering coming to the University of Northwestern, you know, a professor like Dr. Mark Muska is what you're child, son, or daughter would be in the classroom oh, enjoying. Thanks, thanks a lot, because they're all going to come with these questions now. I know, just I hope they do. Me. Yeah. I hope they just pummel so, you. Yeah, yeah, I like that word. I like that word, pummel. You know what, though? I love every one of those questions, because yeah, that's somebody who's thinking, and they're really trying to make sense out of things and understand the scriptures and live out the message of the scriptures. Yeah. You're never going to hear me complain about yeah. questions. And there's no such thing as a dumb question, is Nope. There? The nope. only dumb question is the one you don't ask. That's so true. All right, Dr. Mark Muska is here with me. We're going to take a little break, but let me know what your question is. You can call and get on our studio line and ask the question yourself. Or you can send me a text. I'd love to hear uh, from somebody. We can just talk to you. 877-93-FAITH. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Dr. Mark Moska is my guest. Let me know if you've got a question. I see the phone lines lighting up a little bit. Let me know if you want to come on the, the show live and talk to him personally or just send a text. The number for both is the same, 877-933-2484, 877-93-FAITH. All right, Mark, um, I want to ask about um, the book of Obadiah, 21 yeah. verses, shortest book in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, if you were to be asked about that book, what would be what would be the main message of that? I mean, that's a that's a book everyone should kind of say. I know how to explain that one. 
<laughs> one book, 21 verses. Yeah, I don't think you got a lot of people that are going to say that. Uh, they, um, a lot of the time, people, if they don't even know what's in there, if, <laughs> if they haven't, you know, unstuck all the pages on their Bible, you know, right, that they exactly. got. And so you miss one page and boom, it's gone. Right. So uh, Obadiah, actually, he's got, uh, he's got a short message, but it's got a pretty good jab to it. It does. Yeah. He gets a, a pretty good doink in there. <laughs> and uh, uh, believe it or not, there are parts of Obadiah that seem to uh, f- f- show up. In uh, Jeremiah, where Jeremiah might even be referencing what Obadiah's prophecy is. So, and Jeremiah's a big hitter, you know, that that's the largest book in the Old Testament. So uh, you got the little and the big here. But uh, Obadiah, just for people who uh, aren't understanding what's going on here, uh, Obadiah is a difficult book because there's a bunch of Obadiahs in the Old Testament, and we don't know which one wrote this book necessarily. Interesting. I didn't know that. So the dating of it is very difficult. Uh, scholars will date this anywhere from the 800s BC down into the 500 BC uh, before the Babylonian captivity. And that tells you they don't know. If okay. they've got, you know, 300-year gap yeah. there that they're trying to fill. And so everybody likes to talk about it, and it's fun to discuss it. But uh, he is addressing Edom, which is a Gentile nation just to the east of Israel mm-hmm. and Judah. And Edom, the only reference we have in the book of anything historical taking place is that Obadiah rebukes Edom for taking part in the plundering of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And he said, you shouldn't do that. Take advantage of the weak like that. And so the main message, I think, that comes out of that book, and there's others, of course, that you can take too, but it is a message. uh, Obadiah was not a prophet to Edom. Mm-hmm. He addressed Edom, but he was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. And so he's trying to get across to his people, too. The, the Well, there's two things in Obadiah of pride and thinking your hot stuff. Uh, Edom, they lived up in these cliffs. And, and uh, Obadiah says to them, you know, the, the Lord says to you, yeah, you live up there in the cliffs, but God will bring you down. Right. You think you're high and mighty because nobody can get at you. He can get at you. Mm -hmm. And so he rebukes their pride. But then he also rebukes this participating in the plundering of of Israel, uh, of Judah. And I like that. Boy, you know, how many times you see people standing by or taking part when somebody's being picked on or kicked for something and they're vulnerable and they're weak or they're exposed. Right. Uh, Someone has sinned and it's public and everybody's getting a kick in there. Are you getting in there too or are you coming to that person's aid? Uh, That, uh, uh, when scandals hit the church, I think of that all the time. Are you able to think of something good and productive to say other than, oh, he's a bum, you know, he (laughs) did this and he did that. Uh, Just joining in with the with the condemnation of the person. So mm-hmm. I like the book. It's it's little, and so it doesn't take long to get through, but it's got a, it's got a pretty good yeah. message. Mark, say hi to uh, Tom from West Fargo. Oh, yeah. Hi. Hi, Tom. Hi. Welcome hi. to the show. Hi, Tom. Uh, hi. Yes. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I've got a quick question. My wife and I have been running reading through the book of David. Well, actually, it's a book about David, and I can't, oh. can't think of the name of the title of the book. And in there, there, is, uh, there was a passage, it's in 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled yeah. him. 
Yeah. And that troubled, and that troubled us. <laughs> yeah, I bet it did. Yeah. It, it, you're not the first one, Tom. This is something that uh, it's kind of, uh, it, it's a, it's, it needs a little bit of analysis. And so uh, just to give a little context for people who haven't been reading this, I'm glad. Did you say you're reading this with your wife? Yes, yes, we're reading, and I cannot think of the name of the book, uh, David the Great. That's okay, it. yeah, and, I'm, and glad you, I'm glad you're doing this together. That's a great way to uh, spend some oh. time in God's Word, and uh, sometimes two brains are better than one, right? And you can help each other, so... It oh, works. yeah, and we do it right before our prayer time. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. Anyway, uh, just for people to get the context of this, uh, Saul is king of Israel right now, but uh, God has made it clear he's not going to be king for long, that he has uh, disobeyed the Lord. He has not done what God told him to do, and so he's going to be replaced. And the prophet Samuel told him that. Well, God tells Samuel to go and anoint the next king, of Israel while Saul's still alive and on the throne and and controls the army and everything. And Samuel's going, Saul hears this, I'm dead. Right. Uh, 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 but God reassures him. So in chapter 16, he goes, and this is a fun passage because David's got a whole bunch of brothers, and they march all these guys through for Samuel, and God says to Samuel, nope, uh-uh, nope, 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 nope. And then Samuel asks of uh, uh, David's father, are there any other boys? Well, the kid is out in the field with the sheep. Well, bring him in. And they bring in David, and God says, there's the one. And I love the verse where it says that he, uh, uh, verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Can you imagine that scene? The wow. youngest brothers... Uh, of the brothers is anointed with all his older brothers standing around him. I would love to see that <laughs> That'd be good. someday. But then it's what you talked about, Tom, because after that it says, and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So now this is showing that God's blessing now has moved from Sam, uh, from Saul to David. This anointing of the Spirit was part of the royal prerogative of the king, that the Spirit of God was upon the person. And so what I think you're getting at, though, is what about this evil spirit from the Lord? Is that what what caught your eye? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, sir. So an evil spirit from God terrorized Saul. And so... uh, uh, what's happening here is is that God is turning loose these demonic powers against Saul. And so uh, is God sending? Is he in consort with these demons? I don't think we need to conclude that. But what God does, he constantly restrains evil from all of us, including Saul, while he's king. And what appears to have happened here is God removes this restraint and like woomph, the demons pounce on Saul. I like to thinking about it with a man who's got a very nasty looking Doberman or something like that on a leash and this dog is rah, rah, rah. it just looks like it's ready to tear your lungs out. But he's got him on the leash. But in this passage in chapter sixteen, it's like God lets go of the leash and boom, the that demon hits Saul mm, wow. and terrorizes him from that time onward. So God it's not beyond his prerogative to use these evil powers for his own purposes. I mean, we were in uh, Job earlier, and God allows Satan to get after Job and his family and his possessions, too. So that is not outside of his prerogative. Yeah, Tom, uh, great question. Thank you so much for 
for calling the show. Thank you. You bet. Have a great night. Uh, we're just almost out of time, Mark. Here's a quick oh. question about the, uh, the uh, why is the book of Enoch not in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Isn't uh, he uh, only one of two whom was transfigured to God? Yeah. Uh, this is a debate over the canon of Scripture. Okay. And you spell that with one N in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's not double N in there. That's like, that's what goes boom and kills people. Right. But the canon of Scripture is the books that have been received by the Jews in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament as being authoritative and inspired by God. This was a big issue among the Jews in the Old Testament about which books belonged in that Old Testament canon. And it wasn't resolved until about 100 years after Jesus, believe it or not. I mean, there was quite a rabbinic argument about this and discussion. But they left Enoch out because it didn't seem to pass the tests of genuineness of being inspired by God. The church, however did bring it in early on. And as a matter of fact, in the Bible that most Roman Catholics use today, the book of Enoch is in that Bible. It has more Old Testament books than the Protestant Bible has. So, I mean, we could spend a lot more time talking yeah. about this, but it's a it's an issue of the inspired, authoritative books of the Bible. And this took quite a while to get hammered out by both Jews and the church. Mm-hmm. Hour goes fast, doesn't it, Mark? It does. Yeah. Love having you here. Love your friendship and your wisdom. Just uh, thank you so much. Oh, it's an awful lot of fun. I like seeing you. And Rebecca is such a a joy to see you. Genuine party in here. That wraps up our show for the day. Have a great night, everyone. God bless, and I will see you tomorrow. 